Hey Mark, good to see you. Hello Miriam, good to see you too. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today with Meg King. I am too. I, I, this is a really great day to be recording it. I know that you and Meg uh, both gave testimony to Congress yesterday, um, and uh, a lot came up in that discussion, and I'm really excited to unpack some more of it with Meg here today. I am too. She had some really important insights. I'll look forward to having the opportunity to talk more about that today. Uh, and I also really want to share the program that she leads. It's a really important effort that uh, enables our Congress and our executive branch to have more depth in AI. Uh, she'll tell us more about it, but it was a program founded to support members and their staff in both the executive and congressional branches uh, and, and really help them understand the landscape, help them understand the challenges so that they can be better policymakers in these really important areas. Yeah, we all know how busy policymakers and their staffers are, and so building these bridges to help give them the tools and the knowledge and the expertise that they need to be effective while trying to do many things at once seems to me to be incredibly important. So let's dive right in. Let's do it. Welcome back to In AI We Trust. This week, we are so pleased to welcome Meg King to the show. Meg is the director of the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center a nonprofit think tank created by Congress. In this role, she leads innovative transnational projects, examining the development of emerging technology and analyzing related policy opportunities and challenges. Her program also provides cutting edge training seminars for congressional and executive branch staff to develop their tech knowledge and skills. Previously, Meg was an international project manager at the Defense Department's Cooperative Threat Reduction Program and a senior staff member to the chair of the House Homeland Security Subcommittee on Intelligence, Information Sharing, and Terrorism Risk Assessment. Meg has been recognized as one of the 40 under 40 think tank leaders by the University of Pennsylvania, is a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the Women in International Security Network. Meg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. To start, we wanted to ask you about the Science and Technology Innovation Program that you lead. This is truly an important service. U.S. leadership has not been known historically for its tech savvy, and we're really starting to see a difference. I've had the privilege of testifying recently on the Hill with Meg on ethics and AI, and you can see that members are starting to develop deep and varied concerns, as well as an optimism about our increasing use of AI. Could you tell us a little bit more about the program's mission? Who are you aiming to serve? What's your end goal? What metrics or developments do you use to and, and hope to realize through your program? Sure, thanks, Miriam. Um, so the Wilson Center was created by Congress, as you mentioned, almost 60 years ago as an international think tank. Um, we don't study President Wilson, but we think about international affairs a bit um, like he did. Um, and so to do that, it, you can't have a conversation about foreign policy these days without having a conversation about science and technology as well. They are increasingly intertwined. Um, so our program studies um, emerging technologies for policymakers around the world. Uh, we also investigate methods to foster more open science and we build these things called serious games. So when there are really hard systems problems that are hard to explain, all the inputs and the outputs, a little bit like AI, we try to build um, either digital games or in-person policymaker sorts of war games. So you can kind of 
test out and gamify certain policy scenarios and challenges. Um, part of what we do, I'm a former congressional staffer. Um, I didn't have all the resources I needed when I was there, especially on technology. Um, I, I had to go out and find my own experts that were nonpartisan. I had to go and find my own demonstrations of certain technologies and capabilities. And so when I came to the Wilson Center, I created this training program that we call the Technology Labs. Uh, and they are a variety of issues across um, six weeks. One of them is AI. And we explain um, how AI, what AI is today. We demonstrate models to understand why accuracy levels matter from supply chain to human resources. We explain with the help from a, a group called Equal AI, Bias and Transparency. Um, we talk about the national security implications. We talk about China, what about China? A little bit of uh, myth busting, but also truth telling there. And then a path from narrow to general AI. Um, so once you go through these six weeks, um, you have to apply and get a letter from your member or senator and we have a strict attendance policy. But once you go through these six weeks, then hopefully you have a better understanding of what you know, what you don't know, what you need to know, and who to call on when you have a question as you're writing an amendment to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, or you're submitting some sort of um, a report for um, a variety of oversight reasons. Um, so you know who to call when you need us. It's so terrific to, to hear about that work. I think all of us have, um, uh, worked at this interface between expertise and policymaking and uh, figuring out how to really um, just open up and, and streamline and facilitate that exchange is, is so vital, particularly as the policy issues become more and more technologically complex. Uh, I'm curious if you could just walk us through any, um, uh, without naming names, uh, you know, sort of particular examples of um, uh, legislation or policy processes that uh, you've seen benefit from this kind of approach and perhaps, uh, you know, any issues that you're thinking about applying it to um, beyond what you've already focused on? Sure. So uh, it's, it's exciting because a number of our alumni, um, and this program has been around for um, almost seven years, um, but our alumni uh, have gone on to introduce and pass major legislative proposals on AI. So one of them was the AI Initiative Office at the White House. It's now up and running. Um, and its uh, goal is to develop a strategy for the US on AI, to work with the private sector, to figure out how to get government working with companies that are building these capabilities. And then the second one is on the National Research Cloud, trying to make uh, it more accessible to machine learning researchers um, and businesses to, uh, to connect and do the research they need to do because sometimes it's hard to um, access those capabilities to test out the, the latest theories that you have as a researcher. Taking a different lens here in policymaking, uh, I had the privilege yesterday to testify with you on a panel before the House Financial Services Committee Task Force on AI uh, in a hearing entitled Beyond iRobot Ethics artificial intelligence in the digital age. And during that testimony, you identified key components that you think ethical AI systems should include. Could you share some of those components with us and explain why you think those are important? Absolutely. Um, so there are four that, that seem to come continually come up, both in conversations with policymakers, with, with those that are creating AI systems, 
and with those who are using them. And it's how do you explain how these systems work and what are the methods to do that? Um, how do you um, understand the data inputs to those systems and how do you try to make sure that they aren't discriminatory? Um, how do you test those systems? Because there aren't really ways that um, are standard across the board to do that. Um, and right now, if you talk to companies, as I know you know very well at, at Equal AI, it's not exactly part of the business model to go and test and verify and make sure your AI is exactly right, because otherwise you could miss an opportunity to get to market. And then finally, um, taking a look at um, the whole life cycle of, of AI systems. So for understandable reasons, um, there are increasingly more, um, for lack of a better term, off-the-shelf capabilities. So it's created, an AI system is created for one particular reason. And then uh, because it has other applications or uses elsewhere, it's, um, it, it's able to, you are able to purchase it or access it or use it um, kind of down the line from the original developer. And so as that chain becomes longer and longer, as we find new ways to use these capabilities, that becomes tricky because then you risk having the systems break because they weren't built for what you might be using them for. Or then you have this problem of potentially um, the way that you've added data to it or you've used it, that it, it probably could um, have some sort of discrimination that you might see later or an output you're not expecting. So finding ways to get involved in that process from a, both a policymaker standpoint throughout and working with companies to make sure it's not burdensome is really important. It's such an important topic. I'm glad you brought that up. It's something that we work on a lot at the World Economic Forum. Uh, we're really interested in the role of procurement decisions, both by governments, but also by companies in exercising governance over AI technologies, because obviously uh, technologies, as they change hands, you know, as new data gets put into models that were perhaps trained on different data sets, new kinds of risks arise which we didn't really have to think about before and um, which, which which now though could be really determinative of, of, of what the outcomes are. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And I wanna just, you know, on that thread, um, uh, ask you about another piece of your testimony, um, which focused on um, the rise of ethical frameworks. Uh, you know, we've seen the OECD, we've seen the European Commission, we've seen uh, many others at the corporate level, uh, or uh, you know, statements from civil society groups around what the ethical, you know, sort of issues and and, and what the focus should be. Um, but there's also been criticisms, and I think you alluded to this yesterday, uh, that they're often so high level that it's not really clear how you would operationalize that in terms of a you know product development process or a you know customer relationship or you know the kind of stuff that AI companies have to deal with every day. And so I'm curious just what your thoughts are at this point about um, how we can move from sort of setting out these principles to actually operationalizing them and bringing them down to earth. Sure, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, and I do not envy a lot of the companies that are in this position. But uh, what I would say is um, we've we're about to release a new report on facial recognition technology from the consumer perspective. So what are the consumer technologies that are likely to evolve and in what um, use cases and how to think about ethics as part of the development process in that specific case? 
Um, so what we found was there are a lot of companies that are doing, um, that are thoughtfully developing and that are going back and they have their own internal, as you've mentioned, um, kind of ethics codes. But what, what would be helpful is if, and this is where regulators and governments and policymakers can take a, a really important role, is having conversations at this point about what are you doing and how can we take that best practice and how can we either apply it across an industry or a piece of that across the industry and frankly coming out with some sort of a, um, a framework like we have in, in the cybersecurity space. So NIST, which also does the National Institute for Standards and Technology in the US, which has done um, a lot of work on cybersecurity and came out with what most people consider the baseline cybersecurity standards. They are also working on AI standards and testing. And so taking um, those very specific, okay, you must achieve these things. And then, but that because they are flexible, then you can um, use them for a particular sector, but they won't necessarily apply to another. But as long as you have this, everyone knows that these are the things you have to do and they're specific enough um, to implement. And that's, I think, where we need to go. I don't think we're anywhere close to kind of regulations that are going to, you know, you must comply with ABCDEF um, in order to do GEF, you know, C, because those things, it just, it doesn't work like that. It's just a little too complicated. Fair enough. Uh, I hear you. And, and I'm so glad you were able to share that perspective. And like you, I really look forward to seeing what NIST uh, ends up sharing on this front. I know on the cyber front, their framework has been really a model and, and such a contribution to the industry. And it looks like they're going to be able to do the same with the AI risk management uh, framework, their focus on bias, et cetera. Uh, so to go a bit deeper on this cyber space, uh, what thoughts do you have on lessons we can learn? I know this is an area you've thought a lot about and talked about. Uh, tell us more about what you're working on in that front. Sure, thank you. Um, so first of all, I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that there's amazing work happening on this topic at the um, Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. They are at the forefront of this topic. But we are taking an approach a bit from the international perspective that they quite haven't. Um, and that is, you know, how are countries grappling with this increasingly converging um, capability between AI and then the cyber risks and threats that are posed there in those systems? Surprisingly um, long, the list. But I'll, I'll make, there are three main ways in which the cybersecurity and AI intersect. Um, but the, uh, the specific threats are <laughs> extensive. So um, the first is that um, there are cyber risks that, and so there are cybersecurity concerns with AI systems. So AI systems could be hacked. There are a number of ways that could happen. You could um, have, you could input incorrect data as an adversary. You could actually um, somehow intervene in the process of the data being um, provided to an AI system. Um, you could find weaknesses within models to exploit and then trick the systems themselves. Um, the second is that uh, there are obvious reasons why an adversary might want to carry out a cyber operation using AI. So um, both in identifying faster whether some uh, an adversary is on your network or whether um, there is potentially a vulnerability that um, could be used to get into an adversary's network. 
and relatedly, um, obviously defenders from the industry perspective and government perspective want to use AI to speed up and find patterns they wouldn't necessarily find on their own, um, like those vulnerabilities from a defender's perspective to patch them before an adversary would exploit them. Wow, a lot to a lot to uh, think about and worry about and work on in that answer. So uh, I'm really glad to to have you draw that out. Uh, I want to stay on this thread of um, the international competitive environment, uh, but maybe um, just move up one level. We've had the the privilege of interviewing uh, some folks uh, who have been really involved in the national security dimensions of AI and and thinking through the. Um, sort of geostrategic competitiveness uh, dynamics that exist now and that could exist uh, even more potentially in the future, depending on how things play out, uh, including folks like Bob Work from the National Security uh, Commission on AI. Um, and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts, um, you know, kind of, there's been a lot of hyperbole, uh, including in the last week, I think, um, in, in public around uh, the sort of China versus U.S., um, AI race uh, from a from a defense point of view. Um, I'm curious, you know, what do you see as the kind of the state of play right now in terms of the the kind of um, bigger picture there, and 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 what do you think the U.S. should be doing um, to uh, you know stay ahead of the curve and 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 keep in a in a strong position globally? Uh, so one of the one of the sessions in our our AI lab is on China. For this exact reason, there is a lot. Uh, there are a lot of buzzwords that are used, and there are a lot of um, uh, facts and issues thrown around. And there's not a lot of conversation about technical competency. So we dedicate an entire session to talking about this. Um, what we continually hear from those experts is that the U.S. and the West have significant structural advantages today, that if we continue to um, build out capabilities, if we um, implement a strategy that the White House uh, AI Initiative Office is working on, as well as OSTP, if we, um, if we move forward with that new Bill of Rights that OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy, is putting out, and we make sure that our systems, uh, our AI systems are uh, include our values or at least respect our values, um, then we will remain at the leading edge. Obviously, there are some advantages that China has. They have a different government, government system. They have a very large population. They have some very specific capabilities and some ways of accomplishing things uh, that the US does not and cannot. But Ultimately, when you look uh, at the two countries, there are more universities in our country that are really creating the new innovations that we will uh, need to move forward. There are still more of the papers and patents um, coming out of this country and some of the um, breakthrough um, capabilities, both on the hardware side and on the software side, are still happening here. So with all of that, I think it's really important to just continue to make sure that we're investing in the right place, that policymakers understand how to help the innovation process move forward, which is really hard for governments. We are not so good at doing that. 
Um, but I think what I hear from policymakers and from members of Congress and, and in the Senate is that they want to find a way to change that uh, and to really be thoughtful and not um, over-regulate, but not under-regulate. Uh, before we go, I want to make sure we share some of the varied projects you're working on. Um, it's so interesting to hear about the work you're doing to both support uh, AI understanding and policymaking yourself, as well as enhancing others' ability to do so. Uh, I know you have a deep international lens. Um, I'd love to hear why you think the international cooperation um, is such an important part of your work. And I'd love to hear about some of the other projects you have underway. Sure. So um, if we haven't learned the lesson yet that America can't um, lead in these capabilities alone, then we've got a big problem. Um, these, cap these, these companies um, producing amazing advances um, are not, you know, restricted to the U.S. They are operating in other countries. Uh, and if we impose on companies different standards across different countries, then the companies are at a disadvantage. Similarly, we're also um, not learning together and not um, sharing best practices if we're all going in a different direction. So finding ways, if we can't agree on all the way on the, all the same methods, at least finding ways to share information regularly, to meet regularly, to find specific projects on which we both, whatever countries or regions or um, international organizations on which we all can agree, then we are going to be at a disadvantage, especially in the context of some of those adversaries we mentioned earlier. Um, on other projects, one of the exciting things that we have um, developed recently is we've started working more with machine learning researchers themselves. Instead of just talking about these capabilities, we've had them um, come into the Wilson Center and we help them understand the policymaking process, which is something that they don't usually spend much time thinking about so that then we can help them connect with policymakers and that the two groups can, can come together and meet and talk about, okay, well, how does testing actually work? What does it really mean to write and create a model or a system of models. Um, what does this word mean and what does it actually mean in practice? And those sorts of connections are critical going forward for both policymakers and machine learning researchers to understand where each group is coming from and to actually look at these things and how they might work. Because while some of them are very, very complex. Not all of them are. And there's a middle ground where policymakers can be more familiar, but they shouldn't be experts with how machine learning works. And machine learning researchers should be more familiar with how the policymaking process works as they develop their own systems because they need to be thinking about how what they're creating will ultimately either be regulated or will have impact. And so that's an exciting new projects that we are growing. Terrific. It, it really, um, you know, hearing you talk about the different projects, it really sounds like what you're building um, is, is just this interface between, between the policymakers and the decision makers on the one hand, and on the other hand, the technologists, the technology developers, the technology issues, and um, the technology experts. And 
um, it's so needed uh, in AI and, and, and in many other domains. And, and, and so it's so exciting to hear uh, that it's happening um, and that it's, it's happening so quickly and, and so robustly. Obviously, there's, there's lots more to do, but, but it's really great to hear that these efforts are already underway and can potentially even serve as a model for other efforts in, in other domains that, that may arise. Um, so, you know, maybe just building on that, um, I'll, I'll bring us to our final question, which we ask all of our guests. Uh, sitting at that interface and building that interface, you have a, a kind of unique ecosystem level view of, of what's going on in AI and AI policy. Uh, you know, you're talking to policymakers, you're talking to technologists. So we'd be curious to hear uh, what your rose, thorn, and bud are for AI. So something that you're uh, excited about or happy about uh, is the rose, something that you're uh, not happy about or fearful of is the, is the thorn, and the bud is something you're, you're, you're looking forward to out on the horizon. Great question. I love it. Um, so I think my rose would be that there are many things AI can do so much better than humans ever could. There is absolutely no way that um, I could ever optimize my um, driving down the street to um, the grocery store and miss, you know, the seven traffic jams that I would otherwise normally hit. Um, I'm along with the driving uh, idea. I'm also excited eventually that I won't have to drive and that it will probably be safer because there will be less distracted drivers on the road. Um, my thorn is uh, the inadvertent breaking of AI, just systems doing things that we didn't expect them to do or that humans wouldn't do them in a way that they that the system ends up doing it. Um, the, the famous example is um, a vacuum cleaner collecting dust that then um, spits out its dust in order to collect more <laughs> dust, you know, how do we, how do we identify those problems earlier? So those are, can be a little bit, you know, that's a bit of a silly example, but, you know, we use AI in some really mission critical systems, you know, in airplanes and ACAS, although that's a really impressive one, there are others. Um, so making sure that in those really important ones that we are always checking to see if there's something that's going to go wrong. Um, and then I think my bud would be discoveries that haven't been even conceived of yet, especially in medicine. Think patterns that we would, again, never as humans identify, but that AI is particularly good at doing, uh, which leaves us to do, hopefully, some more of the big context, strategic um, human things that um, we are all frazzled today and have very little time to do. That's perfect. Thank you for giving us that hope um, and for putting our concerns in check and for all that you're doing to make sure that our policy landscape is more robust and more prepared for the future. Thanks so much, Meg. What a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, Miriam, that was uh, another great conversation, I thought. Um, Meg has such incredible experience, and uh, she really brings it uh, to bear on, on her thoughtful commentary on, on, on tactical aspects of you know, how do we make better policy, but also some of these sort of big strategic questions around how does the U.S. stay competitive in, a, in an AI future? Absolutely. I think she has such an important lens and perspective to offer, and I'm so glad she does offer it in a variety of ways, as you heard, through uh, working behind the scenes with staff and policymakers to her work testifying and her thought leadership in the articles that she writes. Um, it's a really helpful lens to uh, both understand how we remain innovative and competitive uh, and how we ensure that we're doing it in a safe and inclusive way. I'm, I'm so glad she was able to share more of her thoughts and, and her work with us today. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And a few things jumped out to me uh, in those remarks. I, I, I thought her perspective on the China-U.S. question was, was very thoughtful. Uh, it has been, as we discussed, a, a, a topic that's, um, I think, drawn a lot of um, passionate uh, perspectives and, and, and perhaps some hyperbole. And I thought that she really just broke it down very clearly into what she sees as the, the real drivers of competitiveness and the real differentiators of the U.S.'s ecosystem and why uh, those you know, might ultimately serve us very well, uh, though not without, of course, uh, taking some smart, strategic, proactive actions to uh, ensure that the U.S. stays uh, ahead of the curve. So I thought that was really thoughtful. And I also just thought the, um, the projects that she describes that they're working on with policymakers, uh, you know, are just, I think, really much needed in building that interface, as I called it in our exchange, uh, between folks who are making decisions and advising on decisions within government, and then all of those folks who are either making technologies or who are studying technologies. Uh, I just think that's so important, and um, I'm just happy to hear that it's happening. Yeah, and I also think it's quite telling that uh, as she goes about her work of informing policymakers and thinking through what we need to lead and compete in the AI space, she does so with an eye towards collaboration. You know, AI doesn't know any borders in its operations, and likewise, we need to be thinking through what the practical applications of law and policies are for the AI uh, that will be making this transatlantic uh, travel instantaneously uh, every moment. Couldn't agree more, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, 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 to keep tabs on it and hear um, how it evolves and see how some of these programs play out over the coming years. Absolutely. Another great discussion giving us more insight into this space and, and the important work that's happening.